You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a fascinating presentation the other day from 91, the desk of Michael Power, who's a strategist at 91 in Cape Town. And the title is Reorientation, the World Past, Present and Future as Seen Through a Chinese Lens. And then tantalizingly in the right-hand corner of the first slide, of which there are 40, it says here, map of the world seen through the eyes of a fish. Now, Michael, I don't know if you are a devotee of a situation comedy from the 1990s called Seinfeld. But there was one particular episode where George Costanza, one of the characters, was sitting in a coffee shop in New York reading one of the New York newspapers. And he said, when are the people of this newspaper going to realize that any story about China is an immediate page turner? In other words, he wants to go on to another story. Reading your presentation, I'd say it's exactly the opposite. What you mean? It's a page turner or a slide turner? Yes. Well, thank you, Lindsay. I, I thought it was just a a very different way. I mean, I was asked by um, some clients in Latin America to say something new about China, say something original about China. They'd heard it all before, yeah. but they wanted to know something they hadn't heard before. So my approach uh, was to take a cue from none other than Joe Biden in his inauguration speech, where he said, "If we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes just for a moment." And look at, try to look at the world, and I've been very presumptuous here because obviously I'm not Chinese, so it's a little, um, uh, you know, I, I'm doing my best, as you can probably see, but nevertheless to try to look at the world through um, the eyes of China. And a very different picture emerges. Yes, it does. And it's obviously a subject matter and a country that, that fascinates you because we've spoken over the years many, many times about China. What I want to know is uh, that how important is it to know the history of China and its relations with other world powers of, of the time, whether it be the 17th century, the 18th century and beyond? How important is it to know China's history in order to understand their position in the world economy and the political economy today? Insofar as China's history drives its behavior today, it's incredibly important to ignore what China has been through over the last 200 years uh, because you're an outsider um, and then uh, believe that somehow you can have some sort of productive relationship with China is to miss the point. The reality is China comes at today from a perspective. And it's not a very pleasant perspective when you look at how they've been treated by what today aggregates and is called the West. Um, That includes Japan, um, especially in the more recent era, includes Japan. One of the most impactful slides from my point of view in your presentation was the, the following. It says... Uh, 1792 was the date. It says, we had no idea Europe's economy was in the ascendant. Britain's Lord McCartney kowtows to our emperor. Uh, Obviously, from the eyes of the Chinese, it says here that the emperor wrote to King George III and said the following, our celestial empire possesses all things in prolific abundance and lacks no product within its borders. There is therefore no need to import the manufactures of outside barbarians in exchange for our own produce. Now, I know that that's never going to happen in a globalized world, but on the other hand, it's quite prophetic what he said. It, it relates back to the problem that the rest of the world has broadly speaking faced with China for 700 years. And that is that, broadly speaking, the only thing that China wanted officially for a long period of time was silver. They sold silk, the, they sold tea, they sold porcelain, but all they would accept in return in large part was silver. And until, of course, the British were able to exploit 
their Achilles heel in the sense of their love for opium um, and force feed them opium after the, the two opium wars of the, of the 19th century. But broadly speaking, and obviously today that's not exactly true. I mean, China still needs huge amounts of, uh, for instance, commodities from the rest of the world. But uh, even today we face that problem where China pretty much produces uh, all that it needs for itself. Yes, it buys luxuries as well and, and you know, tag hour watches and Ferraris and whatever. But the reality is, is that they don't have much of a need to import manufacturers from outside, as they called them then, barbarians. Exactly. 1820, it says here that one third of the global economy of 1820 was Chinese. Then it goes on to the Opium Wars, 1839 and then 1856, which went on for for four years. Then there was the Boxer Rebellion, uh, 1931, Japan. It keeps on going on. Do you think that the almost 200 years of humiliation really steeled the Chinese population and the Chinese authorities to say, right, we're going to show you now? Perhaps. I think there is an element of sort of bounce back after that. But this phrase century of humiliation is actually one I believe initially was used by Deng Xiaoping. It may have deeper roots. Mm. Um, And it really lasted for about 110 years, which was 1839 to 1949. Um, But they were they were the punch bag of the West. And in that uh, example, I'm including Russia and Japan. And, uh, you know, they were left with less than 5% of the world's economy, um, having been started out the period, broadly speaking, with a third of it. So one can understand that there, there is a sense of we want to at least restore the status quo ante. But yes, to carry it through even further, which is why this is a past, present and future, there is a sense that, that, that they are going to recover very much to, let's say, 25% of the world's economy um, in short order. Through the eyes of China, fast forward to 2021 is the next slide. That which was in 1820 will soon be again. And I believe they really believe it. Well, look, that chart, I think, was created by McKinsey, a guy at the London School of Economics has probably been doing the underwork on that. But that chart's been seen all over the world at the centre of economic gravity um, has moved from somewhere between India and China in the 1820s uh, out towards Iceland uh, in the 1950s and is now rapidly heading back towards northern China today and within 10 years will probably be located somewhere in northern China. Uh, the long-term destiny of that particular line is probably somewhere in northern Laos or Cambodia. So where is our country, China, today, it says here, through the eyes of China? Key measures of our standing in today's world. Maybe pick out the cherries of this, because some of the numbers are quite staggering. I think they are. I mean, a couple of indications, you know, seven out of nine of the world's largest ports are now Chinese. Shanghai is easily the largest. They're number two in R&D funding, and by some measures, uh, they may soon be number one. In terms of PPP, they're definitely... Uh, number one in the world in R&D spending. Uh, Largest country by internet usage, 854 million to India's 560 million. Note the US, there are more users in India than there are people living in the United States. Mm. The largest producer of renewable energy, massively bigger than number two, which is Brazil because of all of its hydro capacity. So, uh, you know, aside from the usual numbers of largest population, largest urban population, third largest land area, uh, second largest economy, these are the more sort of gritty definitions of, of what underlies those, those, those you know, usual suspects that we tend to quote when we're talking about China.
How we achieved our current economic status and reputation, opening up to trade and in particular joining the World Trade Organization in 2002, remade our economy. But also I would say I would go deeper than that and more sinister than that. And so it's not sinister, but it's uh, opportunistic is that they've taken advantage of the laziness of the West and also the United States xenophobia. Is that too strong a statement? Well, uh, laziness, perhaps, I think the relative expensiveness of the West, and by that I mean the expensiveness of labor, they've been able to undermine with what everybody calls the China price. Um, And superimposed on that, they had uh, an ally. I don't know if it was... Uh, what you might call a useful idiot, because they made a lot of money along the way in this whole process, which was the multinationals of the West, who were more than happy to set up supply chains rooted in China, source product from China, and distribute it in the West and make a huge margin along the way. I mean, over the last 20 years, China's number one ally has not been a country. It's been the multinationals of the West. Okay, let's have a look at the Indo-Pacific Basin and how it looks to China today, because, it, I mean, that is the new trade zone, isn't it? Of course, America shunned it under the stewardship of Donald J. Trump, but it's incredibly important. And how influential will it continue to be, Michael? Well, look, I mean, as a result of, which is why it's still important to look back on it, what happened in the 19th century, how the uh, Europeans were obviously very active in China, but particularly now in terms of the legacy, how the U.S. spread across the Pacific, um, capturing huge numbers of islands in its in its wake, as it were. One of the islands was indeed called Wake Island. But Hawaii, Alaska, which they bought from the, the Russians, then as an aftermath of, uh, of, of World War II, obviously they ended up with huge bases in Japan, in Okinawa, as a result of the Korean War, huge base in South Korea. They have good links with the likes of Singapore and and Thailand. They have armament supplies agreements with with Taiwan. They have a defense pact with the Philippines. And there's still outposts of British, French, and perhaps more logically Australian military strength outside of their own countries in uh, this part of the world. Um, And that's what China faces. Uh, And meanwhile, we've now learned in the last couple of weeks that the U.S. is intent on building an anti-China missile network along what's called rather strategically the first island chain, uh, essentially putting some sort of barbed wire fence uh, around China, largely maritime barbed wire fence, but nonetheless, nothing particularly friendly. No, it's not friendly at all, but it's also been provoked a little bit by the Chinese, I think, because of the island issues. I mean, there's obviously a dispute who owns certain islands, who doesn't, and um, there's a lot of uh, jostling uh, going on. How important might that be if um, China starts to Look, flex I think, its muscles? I think obviously, that's the, that's the proximate cause, and that's what's getting everybody rattled at the moment. The reality is, looking back through history, these islands were usually Chinese. Let's not you know, get away from that fact. They just lost them as a result of complications arising out of uh, a World War II and indeed their civil war, which ended up obviously with the Kuomintang retreating to, to Taiwan. Um, but the reality is, is that they have off their near shore uh, various islands, which um, the, the Western world in particular is saying, don't you dare go there. If hmm. anyone said that to the likes of you know, the United States or Europe, we would get a response. Well, we did get a response when the <laughs> Russians tried to 
put some armaments into into Cuba, we know what happened. And don't forget the Falkland Islands, of course, in the 1980s. Indeed, a long way from the the British homeland. Yeah, precisely. Okay, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, that's massive, and it's also linked to demographics. The demographics is the subject I really want to look at because is China's population going to age rapidly and therefore affect its economic growth and its economic potential? The answer is yes. Let's not get away from the fact, come 2030, the size of China's wage force, and here I'm specifically probably focusing on its urban way, way, uh, workforce, uh, will have plateaued, peaked, and may even be starting to, to decline. It's still got another 10 years ahead of it of, of nearly 10 million people a year uh, coming off the land and into the cities. And really what drives demographics at the moment is not specifically the top-line number of, of population, shape of population, but, but urban population and shape of urban population. And there, China's still got a lot of growth ahead of it. And that's something which, to be perfectly honest, many observers from outside China have, have completely missed. I mean, last year, in the midst of COVID, they still got nine-plus million people moving off the land and into the cities in China. So um, that, that will drive things for, for the next decade. However, you're absolutely right. Come 2030, um, that particular source of uh, extra uh, demand, as it were, uh, will have dried up in large part. And China's going to have to look to another part uh, of the world, basically, uh, to drive demand for its products. And I think that uh, what it's essentially saying is that when your demographics starts to, uh, to, to give way, by someone else's, or at least piggyback your, your your structure on somebody else's, and you know, to some extent, it's what you know, the British did in uh, end of the nineteenth century by building all their railways all over the world, not just in in the so-called Commonwealth or, or the Empire, but you know, throughout Argentina, where where trains run on the left-hand side of the road, not the right-hand side of the road, as it were, uh, unlike cars, simply because it was all built by the British. Russia, uh, which most where most of the train, uh, the the rail, the original rails were built by the British. So the Chinese essentially doing something not dissimilar. The thing I would add is that while the British were doing things that were physical, uh, the Chinese are doing yes, the physical, but also the digital. Uh, and here, perhaps the most interesting thing is what they're now doing in terms of underwater cables. And then even more so, uh, building out low-orbiting satellite network where they already have a more extensive footprint than, than the Americans. And they already have a system called Baidu, uh, which is far more um, powerful than, than GPS. Is it unkind of me to say that BRI, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, and also the, the next one, which is RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, is taking advantage again of the West's laziness, which I, that's my phrase, not yours, but it's, it's almost like conservative colonialism. That's, that's when I look at it, I think to myself, very, very clever, clever conservative colonialism. It's too far to push it to laziness. I mean, the RCEP has, you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, who are outposts in a sense of the West in it. Um, so uh, it's not purely uh, an Eastern construct, although it might be located in the East. But yes, I, I hear what you're trying to say. There's an element of having been caught napping. Um, and there's a sense yeah. that you know, the, the, the systems, particularly of uh, the Anglo-Saxon West, United States, United Kingdom, 
were um, undermined by this um, uh, unholy alliance between China and their own multinationals. Um, and uh, the result was we have seen, although for the first 10 years after, let's say, 2000, everybody was rejoicing in the fact that they could buy unbelievable products at unbelievably low prices, they suddenly turned around to realize that, that actually a lot of their jobs were going along with it. And although they could buy this product, they didn't have the wages with which to do it. And, and, and hence, let's just say, the emergence of things like universal basic income into the, into the political conversation. The reality is, is that it, globalization, as happened post-2000, first was seen as a boon and then turned into a bane. And uh, it's, uh, it's something which now, uh, and if you saw that incredible um, film or read the book, Hillbilly Elegy, you realize how the heartland, in, in this case of America, ha has been eaten away. Ultimately, uh, and yes, um, the Republicans, Donald Trump, had a point, but they, they've been eaten away by uh, a much more efficient, much more lower cost machine um, that came out of Asia. And speaking of which, we live in an increasingly prosperous neighbourhood, they say. By 2030, our region, Asia-Pacific, will have 65% of the world's middle classes. That's a massive, massive number. You look at Europe, Europe will be an old age home compared to Asia-Pacific, which is, it's not scary, but it's a reality. It's a reality, and this is the point that you know, we have to um, essentially accept um, in that forecast, I think um, the Americas and, and, and Europe will end up being 27% versus 65% uh, in, in Asia. Not quite. Um, uh, it's, you know, two and a bit times. But boy, that's huge. And if you yeah. consider what's happening in terms of the growth over the next decade, the West shrinks from at least Europe and America, 37 to 27, and, and, and Asia grows from 54 to 65 and that's in 10 years. That's an incredible change in a relatively short space of time. It really which is. Which is why I'm trying to focus people's attention on this coming decade, which will, will be a game changer. Uh, you talk about the digital Ren Minbi, but uh, I don't want to talk about that because it's purely as the Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency market at the moment is uh, a speculative, but it, it'll, it'll come. Not in the case of China. They're essentially doing, let's say, something that was made in Africa, and it's not often we can say this, namely mm. the M-Pesa project of, of, of Kenya, and now putting it into a far more robust structure in the form of a, of a digital currency that has, as it were, blockchain behind it. And uh, I mean, we've just seen that the, the hottest company in, in the United States is called, as a, as a unicorn, is called Stripe at the moment, which is a payment system um, valued at nearly $100 billion as a unicorn. Uh, and that's just a payment system. And essentially what we're talking about here is a payment system uh, that is underpinned by blockchain. And, and I don't see a real problem with that. Um, it's not the same, dare I say it, uh, as crypto. It's just a payment system that's underpinned by the, the blockchain system. Yes, it will evolve over the years. And we don't know what it's going to be in, in five, ten years time. But uh, certainly, it seems like the future and the Chinese are jumping on the bandwagon. You talk about space. I'm really rather keep my feet on the ground rather than go into space because I don't see the point of it personally. You say in one slide, which is very good indeed, back to the past or forward to the, the, the future. What's going to happen now? And also, and I want to paint a little bit of a backdrop here. 
the increasingly dictatorial nature of uh, President Xi? Look, I think that one has to understand that the Chinese Communist Party has always been, to a greater or lesser degree, uh, dictatorial, if that's the word that you want to use to describe it. Yes, please. Um, It has always been uh, in control. It has always been running things. And actually, and I always make this point, um, China uh, didn't become communist in that sense, and state control was not something that they learned from Marx. Um, That had been there for the entire imperial era of China. Um, And they had a communist party uh, that ran things. It was called their civil service, which famously had the most uh, difficult exams in the world that you had to pass in order to get into. But they had a civil service. And that civil service today has been renamed uh, and, yes, to some extent reconfigured uh, into today's communist party. And, yes, she sits on the top of that. He is the leader of this structure. And... My sense is that um, going through this particular stage of economic development and to some extent social development, but principally economic development that China has been and is going through now, having a strong leader who's basically not corrupt, uh, you may not like every aspect of of that which he he practices and preaches, but uh, corruption is not one of the things he's particularly known for. It's it's actually served China well. However, and this is the catch, uh, is this model something that uh, is robust in 20 years' time? And that's where the debate becomes a lot more fluid. Final couple of questions, and uh, they may be difficult to answer, and you may say with your asset management hat on, Lindsay, go and jump in the lake, but how do you reconcile yourself to the fact that the Chinese authorities have clamped down and almost removed Hong Kong's democratic constitution as the first thing and in a, in a in a fairly brutal way over the last uh, couple of years that's the first question the second question is also the removal of a minority muslim culture the essential removal of a muslim culture within Chinese borders. And when when you look at China and you say, I want to invest in in this country, do you say to yourself, well, wait a second, I'm a company that has very, very strong ESG credentials. So how can I justify investing in China when these things are going on behind the scenes? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, Michael. Look, I I will answer it. And anyone who has got Western blood running in their veins can't but help but be uncomfortable with both what's been happening in Hong Kong and what's happening to the Uyghurs in in Western China. And one can only hope that uh, they will find uh, an arrangement which is far more acceptable to all parties in the not-too-distant future. But do remember, when money was flowing out of Europe in the mid-19th century and going to the United States, the U.S. was exterminating, and there's no other word for it, the people who had originally occupied the space that is now known as the United States of America. Yes. They were they were herding them into you know what is today a fraction of the land that they previously had and hardly an existence that is a, is a particularly fair existence. Now, I'm not trying to play the game of moral equivalency here, but that did not stop money flowing out of Europe and into the United States and helping them build the railroads that essentially crisscrossed the country that previously had been occupied by the the Native Americans. So it was a complicated world. And I don't see a lot of judgment being directed at, at, at capitalism then when they were doing that. I think we are 
we've moved on. Um, I think ESG is an issue. I think we have to be sensitive to it. But at the same time, we also have to be sensitive to the fact that in today in Hong Kong, not everyone is in agreement with the people of the uh, the more democratic vein that uh, have been protesting in the past. Uh, in fact, I would probably suggest they're not even in a, a majority. Um, and you know, the fact is that life must go on. I don't like making compromises. I don't like having to accept that I must knuckle under and accept this as as as, as fait accompli. It's not it's not something that goes easy with me in my Western blood. But I have to be realistic. The fact is that yeah. as investors, we have to understand there are four times as many tra shares traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange today than there are on the London Stock Exchange. Um, and that is where the action is moving to. And while we can continue as best we can to pursue our ESG agendas, and we must, particularly, I would say, the E at the moment, because um, that is existential, as Mark Carney said yesterday. It should be central to every issue that is discussed everywhere. And I think he's right, because, you know, all of this is uh, essentially um, irrelevant if we haven't got a planet to inhabit. But we have to be concerned about the S and the G as well. And I think that you know, there are issues that, 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 that can be pursued. Um, and I think they will be pursued. And I think that, you know, one has to look for what's happening within China as well. And there have been cases. And I think they are pushing back. I mean, I think, for instance, on the governance issue, I happen to believe that the, the taming of, of, of Alibaba was not simply about a, a slapping uh, on the wrists of, of Jack Ma. But the reality is, is that, that it was becoming just too big and too powerful yes. and uh, monopolistic. And too uh, outspoken as well. Way. And maybe too uh, outspoken. That, that too. But, but, but you know, in the way that uh, you know, the U.S. had the, the, the Sherman Antitrust Act in the late 19th century or the early 20th century, and they essentially took on the likes of Rockefeller, you know, that's sort of what's happening in China today. And it's all very strange in, in one for us to say, oh, it's anti-capitalist. But at the same time, the actual essential behavior of many monopolists is precisely anti-capitalist. So uh, we've got to you know, weigh, all, weigh the two things together. I see that you know, even the beloved Tencent is now potentially facing some pressure. Yes, I say beloved because in South Africa, of course, NASPERS uh, owns 32, whatever percent of it is. And, and you know. We have to accept that, 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 that China may have an anti-monopoly agenda at the moment. That does not mean it's an anti-capitalist agenda. In fact, deep down, it probably means it's a pro-capitalist agenda. Hmm. Yes, remove monopolistic practices. Michael, that was absolutely fascinating. How do we get hold of this presentation, reorientation, or do we have to be a 91 client? Look, I'm, I'm distributing it slowly but surely. I'm sure that it will be made available in the course of the next month more widely. And I know I'm you know, giving it in a number of instances in the next, including, I believe, to the FT next month, to their, to their future forum. Very good. Um, yeah, it, it will be available. It's not something that I specifically regard as being proprietary. I, I, I think in large part it's historic and, and this sort of history can be found uh, by anybody. It's informative, it's educational, and uh, very entertaining at the same time. Yeah, thought-provoking is the phrase that I would use to as the overriding theme from your 40 slides. Michael Power is a strategist at 91 in Cape Town.
The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.